0: This is Ahmed Sharif and welcome to The Lead by DH Radio. It may take some time before the COVID-19 vaccine is made available to the public, but in the course of the ongoing pandemic, there have been many repurposed drugs that have come to the limelight. To talk about this and more, we are today joined by eminent doctors that include Dr. Yatin Mehta. He is the Chairman of the Critical Care and Anesthesiology from Medanta with 40 years of experience. Then we have Dr. Ravindra Mehta, who is a senior consultant from Apollo Hospitals and has expertise in pulmonology, interventional pulmonology and critical care medicine. And finally, we have Dr. Tanu Singhal, who is a consultant on paediatrics and infectious disease with Kokila Dhirubhai Ambani Hospital and Research Institute. Uh, Hi, all doctors and welcome to uh, DH Radio. Hi. 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 It's great to have you on our show, sir. And ma'am so my first question is to dr yatin mehta so like when any patient right when you first see the signs of such infectious diseases what are the protocols that you have to follow see first we have to
1: have a high degree of suspicion at this time anybody comes with fever and cough and general malaise you have to have a high degree of suspicion that you have to rule out covid and then you look for other degree. so obviously your Triaging starts from the time the, pen, the patient enters the hospital or he calls you on the phone. You, obviously, a doctor needs to see the patient. And in the hospital, we have special triaging areas. That means any of these suspicious patients with fever and respiratory illnesses are diverted immediately to another specific area when they are isolated from the other patients. Because other patients also should not be exposed to the... and The staff has to be adequately protected. So that staff is separate from the other emergency room staff uh, which uh, looks after the other patients. And then obviously we have, we do immediately besides the other tests, we do the specific tests for the diagnosis of COVID, which may be a rapid test or which may be a regular RT-PCR test. So if the that patient's so the test comes negative, they stay in that observation isolated area, and then we decide where to shift this patient's if it all to, to admit them. If you don't need to admit them also, once the diagnosis is confirmed, then obviously many of these patients will go for domiciliary care and you, they can stay at home in isolation and we follow strict guidelines of what medications and how to isolate them and keep them from the other family. So that is one. of those.
0: Now, what about the uh, medical procedure, Doctor? Like what sort of medicines do you prescribe and what is that protocol for followed that?
1: Yeah, see, I mean the medicines which we started treating these patients with in March, they have changed dramatically over a period of time, so because it's been a learning process for everybody, starting with the physicians and coming to FDA and ICMR. The guidelines have also changed over a period of time. That time, we had published the first guidelines from Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine, which have also substantially changed as the evidence has come in, because medicine and the disease is a dynamic uh, learning process. So initially, we used to give hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and doxycycline. Well, all of these have come and gone. I mean, they are not no, no more really recommended. At the moment, what we recommend was the diagnosis is confirmed that all of them get supplements. So vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, these are given to everybody. Uh, these are all empiric therapies. The evidence is not very much proven, but there is no harm in giving these medications. The patient with fever, we obviously, we give paracetamol, which is the safest anti-fever agent to be given. And then we do give antiviral agents. That means if the patient has a very mild uh, disease, um, which can be treated at home and does not require any hospitalization or and, um, uh, oxygen therapy, then we give them some oral antiviral agent uh, called favipiravir. Earlier, it was the lopinavir-retinovir combination, which has again been thrown out of the window. But uh, favipiravir in the Western India, there's still a lot of people are using it. And if the hospitalized patient, they do a, they give a drug called Remdesivir, which is an injectable intravenous agent. Initially, it was very expensive. It was being sold in black market also, but now it is freely available. And I think Indian companies also manufacturing it, so it is, prices have come down and availability is easy. But this is, again, you have to take a consent from the patient because this is still for more for a study purpose than standard uh, guidelines uh, in India. Although FDA approves it as the standard of, standard of care. And then there are other therapies like low molecular weight happening because all these patients have a tendency to enhance clotting of blood. So what happens in your blood vessels, the clots are formed. And because the clots are formed, the blood supply to all these organs comes down. That means your kidneys can uh, become dysfunctional, your liver can become dysfunctional, you can have strokes, you can have heart attacks, your lung function gets... Further down, your intestinal motility goes down, so your loss of appetite and all those things happen. Uh, your moods can swing. So we all, all of us do use uh, some form of uh, blood thinners in these patients depending on the risk of bleeding because that has to be ruled out. And the steroid is established. The one therapy which has proven to be effective is steroids. It reduces the mortality. All other therapies, none of them really have uh, shown to reduce the death rate. But steroids have been shown to reduce death rate. There was a large trial in the randomized trial in the United Kingdom in a large number of hospitals, and which is beyond any doubt proven that it does reduce the mortality in moderate to severe cases. So we give injectable steroids, although these can be given orally at home. And These are the, these are the uh, therapies which we normally give. And then there are supportive intensive care therapies, like a patient has respiratory failure, which many of them would have, because once the patient is in the ICU, about 5% of the patients will get admitted to the ICU, who are sicker patients. So they then require supportive therapy, oxygen therapy, and mental therapy, and organ support, kidneys where you support the kidney, heart space you require supportive of the heart and so on.
0: Dr. Ravindra Mehta, now coming to you as Dr. Uh, Yatin explained uh, medication protocols. Can you explain us the study that you have done on remdesivir and where does it stand in this? Uh, when WHO says that you know remdesivir is uh, even they have not uh, you know approved uh, sort of the use of this uh, medicine. So where does the study stands and how do you project this? So all, Dr.
2: Yatin Mehta very nicely explained the whole. Uh, uh, treatment paradigm of COVID-19 in a few minutes uh, exactly where we start off, what we're doing and how we are using whatever we know of, what we have and what we can, what we think is safe and uh, useful for patients uh, depending on the stage of disease. Uh, so in that particular uh, spectrum of panorama comes Remdesivir as uh, the only intravenous antiviral uh, anti-COVID-19 drug available at this point. repurposed agent which was put through the the usual uh, gruel of trials and has also gone through what trials usually do when we're doing things in a hurry uh, a pendulum where initially the drug seems to be doing something then it seems to be doing a lot when the, uh, the the flagship trials came and then who says you know hold it guys it's maybe not as great and they put out controversy which is very healthy in the medicine space we require such questions yeah in the midst of all this, we were looking at our data as the pandemic was hitting India, which came a little later. And India also behaved like four countries. I think mm-hmm. Delhi, Bombay all got hit earlier. Then the South was a little later. So as it hit us, we also fortunately had enough of remdesivir. So the earlier part of the pandemic, they did not have remdesivir. The drugs were, as Dr. Mehta said, hydroxychloroquine, maybe the cyvermectin, doxy, probably nothing much. And then by the time it came us we had remdesivir. So we looked at our data of... Uh, the first 350 patients who got the drug, and uh, to, from the point of view of multiple aspects, what, how useful is it, which category of patients, and uh, what are the outcomes in an Indian cohort, by and large. So in our uh, single center study, uh, which is retrospective, because there's no way we could have done a prospective c- control trial, no patient would have agreed not to get the drug at that point, We looked at a cohort of moderate to severe patients, not mild, please note, moderate to severe because with the available stocks and the guidelines at that time, only those patients were getting remdesivir. And we found that if given in time, if given before a particular time period, which in our study was nine days, this drug has a mortality benefit in the moderate to severe COVID-19. Now, moderate to severe COVID-19 to understand simply are patients who require hospitalization because their oxygen levels are falling less than 94 percent this this oxygen number is known to everybody now and they are likely to progress to more severe COVID and they are the people who may actually get worse reach ICUs and so on and so forth so in those subsets when given at the right time the drug had a mortality benefit in our study now, why is this important? Because, first of all, it's not easy to show mortality benefits. Prospectively, it's very difficult. Secondly, at the same time as we are trying to put out our data, there is a colossal, massive, juggernaut, mammoth, WHO uh, data coming out, which is questioning the whole premise of with. So, I think it's a space where we have differing information from differing areas, with each having both its uh, pluses and minuses, but enough of a hint at this time to show that the drug is useful in hospitalized, reasonably sick patients so as to prevent worsening and potentially impact on saving lives also. So, this is what came out of the study which we were able to do. I think many more studies will come in the space. There will be more data. The studies are varied because of different protocols, different drugs, and so on. But our study was a combination steroid study, again repeating, which shows that early and the early cutoff in this study is nine days. If you give it nine days within symptom onset, patients have outcome benefit. I'll take a minute more to explain the symptom onset thing. A lot of us basically have looked at or patients have looked at the disease from the time of diagnosis, the day I got my test positive. The thing to remember very clearly for uh, for any one of us who gets COVID-19 is the treatment actually dates on the time of the first symptom. Whether it's a a respiratory symptom, it's body ache, headache, whatever it may be, the first symptom is the first clinical indicator of disease. And so from that time starts the countdown. So that is what we, uh, we showed that from that time within nine days in patients who are progressing, with moderate to severe disease requiring oxygenation and oxygen and hospitalization, this drug has a mortality advantage. So it's another throw in the mix so as to try and you know uh, create more uh, interest and uh, you know uh, and fuel the not only the controversy but also the practice certainty which clinicians are going through. My two colleagues will also echo their particular thoughts but each one of us has to troubleshoot what is coming in the space given to us. At the same time, do justice to the people who are in front of us and dying if we don't do anything, so as to try and have good outcomes as we're learning on the job at the same time, practicing the best we can in an uncertain environment.
0: Dr. Tanu, now coming to you, earlier in the when we were having a discussion, Dr. Mehta mentioned about uh, other drugs also like hydroxychloroquine and favipar. Why do you think that these didn't work and uh, why is Remdesivir the last resort or uh, anything of that, that sort?
3: Yeah, so before answering your specific question, I would also like to share the data from our hospital about remdesivir use. So, you know, we have actually been giving services because Mumbai was one of the first cities to be hit by COVID. So we started our COVID unit in in March. And uh, since then, we have treated about uh, 700 patients with severe disease. That means those who have required oxygen. And um, you know, we started our initial treatment was actually steroids and low molecular weight heparin till the middle of June and following that remdesivir came in. So we started using remdesivir. So we have basically two population of patients, one before 17 June where remdesivir was not given and one after 17 June where remdesivir was given because it was available. So we tried to see what was the difference in the outcome of these two patient groups uh, because all the other t- things as far as treatment is concerned remained the same. You know, the steroids, clexane, oxygen, antibiotics if needed, everything else retained, remained the same. So what we found is that there was a dramatic reduction in mortality. So pre remdesivir introduction, our mortality rates were 45%. And after introducing Remdesivir, the mortality rates dropped to 15%. Now, it is possible that some of this decline in mortality could be due to other reasons. You know, maybe patients were coming in early, maybe the virus was getting less virulent. Maybe, you know, the clinicians were more experienced in dealing with these things. So these could be other confounders, but we saw a dramatic reduction in mortality and we could also see the turnaround time was improving. So we have the same number of ICU beds, but after introduction of remdesivir, we found that patients were getting better and going out of the ICU faster so that our number of admissions went up. You know, we were able to admit more patients. So that actually was similar to the ACT trial results. So I would agree with Dr. Mehta that though the WHO has come out with a statement that it doesn't help, but in clinical practice we could see it in front of our eyes. And now if you've used a drug for seven or eight months, doctors know whether it is working or not working. So we continue to use it despite the WHO directive against it because it's not just because the act trial showed the benefit it is because we could also see the benefit in our patients uh, when we were dealing with these patients on a day to day basis and the third reason is because there is nothing else that we can offer these patients because there is no other antiviral which we can offer. So if the patient is paying for his or her own treatment, then if they agree to use it, then it is at least wise to give it. Because, you know, a lot of the WHO is based on the public health perspective. Because, you know, if we are looking at using the drug on a very, very wide scale, uh, then it should justify the cost effectiveness. Because there we are talking about, you know, billions of dollars worth of treatment and whether it is really justified. But when you are dealing with an individual patient, I still feel that there is merit in prescribing this drug. The second point which you raised was that why did... The other antivirals not work and that is mainly because, you know, they were repurposed. Actually, even remdesivir is a repurposed drug. But, you know, for example, hydroxychloroquine. It came in because there was some in vitro data to suggest that it works against SARS-CoV-2 and there was some uh, animal data Um, and because uh, hydroxychloroquine was widely used in other viral infections in the past and at that time, you know, there was nothing we could offer the patient. So I think it was okay to offer this drug because finally, you know, we are clutching at straws. So it was used, but then as time passed by and as evidence came in, they realized randomized control trials came in mild disease and severe disease as pre-exposure prophylaxis, as post-exposure prophylaxis. And all of them said that the drug doesn't work. So it went away because basically it was a repurposed drug and the evidence was mined. And the same is the case with azithromycin also because it's just an immunomodulatory drug and there was this study from France which showed that the viral loads in people getting azithromycin go down and that is why it was used because at that time there was nothing else we could give the patient and also it was with lopinavir, ritonavir, Um, so, um, so we must understand that this is a new disease that we are dealing with and it is okay, it is justified to use drugs which are not very harmful which show some um, you know element of benefit and then you use them and then as a data accumulates and as you have other options to let them go so um, so i feel it was okay you know because this is how treatment for a new disease evolves you use whatever is available to you in a proper way making sure And I don't think any people really died of using hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin or, um, you know, lopinavir, ritonavir, that didn't happen. So it is okay that you use a drug then you find it's not beneficial, you give it up and you wait for another drug. Now, it is possible that while we are talking like this about remdesivir, over the next three to four months, you may have more data coming in to say that the drug doesn't work and you may have another antiviral which comes your way and then you would use it. Now, my another
0: question is open to everybody. In this past nine months of the pandemic, what we've seen is various treatment methods have come out. Like say, suppose, as you all mentioned a series of drugs that uh, that the doctors prescribed or which were in the news say hydroxychloroquine which uh the Trump administration had uh, you know imported huge quantities from India and then there was plasma trials being done and uh, at last uh, the ICMR came out saying that there's nothing effective about it and then uh, uh, there was some experiments if I can remember on uh, extracting horse antibodies and there were various sort of things and now there's a race for vaccine so what do you think and where do we stand in the pandemic and what do you think will be uh, you know, the ideal solution to end this pandemic, whether it is continuing with these drugs or waiting for the vaccine or what, what exactly, in your opinion, is, is the right solution?
1: See, one advantage, one collateral benefit of this pandemic has been that intensive care services have improved tremendously in this country during the last six months. Beds have been created. People have realized the value of intensive waste. Equipment has been manufactured or imported or whatever. So, that awareness has, has increased. So, even if after the pandemic is controlled, I think these are long term beneficial effects of uh, the pandemic which have happened. Also, I mean, where we stand, one advantage, the other advantage is that all the drugs which are available outside are available now in India. So, the DCGI and the Indian FDA quickly they approve the drugs and they, they, they come here because they understand the seriousness. So, is the science. I mean, you do the studies. P- 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 papers which would never have been published in any are being getting published are becoming fast tracked because everything is done fast now because the time is limited, people are dying, people understand that. But that does not mean that we circumvent the safety issue. So what people are saying, oh, start giving vaccine to everybody. You can't do that. These science-based things, medical-based things should be decided by the vaccine science, scientists, by the epidemiologists. And then finally, the execution will come to the government of how much it is going to cost and how they're going to distribute and what is going to be the coal chain and all that. But we are almost almost there. Safety issues should not be expedited or hidden under the carpet. But I think if I other, if you look at the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine um, and the Moderna vaccine are not very much doable at the moment in India because the cost is more. Because the freezing um, uh, is requires minus seventy degrees, so which is going to be maintaining the cold chain and those sort of freezers are not available everywhere in India, so that is going to be a major, uh, major problem. So, uh, relatively, the other vaccines, like for example, the Serum Institute vaccine and all these all developers, they have been already kept manufactured crores so of vaccine. They are already in stock. So, that is probably will come in by January. I think we should see the vaccine uh, happening, and then probably the pandemic will come more under control. And that does not mean that you do away with the safety uh, things which we do, that the safe distancing, masking, hand hygiene, uh, avoiding crowding and all that, that needs to be continued. But I think I'm seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, which we are going to, hopefully the next year will be better than this miserable year, which we all have gone
3: through. So I just want to make two or three points. Uh, so the first one is that uh, treatment of mild COVID Is still a problem because what we are seeing in these patients is that they're getting polypharmacy, you know, despite the fact that there is no evidence about, uh, you know, uh, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, ivermectin, doxycycline being useful. These are being prescribed on an outpatient basis in very large quantities, which I think has to stop because now there's no data about these. The second thing is about use of steroids. So, you know, after the recovery trial data came in, you know, what we are seeing is that people are being given steroids, um, even if they don't need it, even if they're not hypoxic, if they're having fever on day five, day six, steroids are being started. And that actually is counterproductive because it's impairing your own body's immunity to fight the infection. So, giving steroids when they are not required, giving them in large doses and giving them for long time is also a problem which we are seeing at this point in time. And because of that, we are seeing so many infections in patients post-COVID that, you know, they're now coming back with bad fungal infections like mucomycosis, bad bacterial infections, etc. So, There also has to be, you know, because a lot of focus has gone on inpatient management of COVID and most hospitals have their protocols which are well set. But for mild COVID, you know, um, you know, like people are doing CT scans on the first or second day of the illness. And, you know, that is not recommended. People are not doing their COVID tests. Instead, they're just going and doing a CT scan, etc. So I think there has to be a proper dissemination of information about how mild COVID should be treated and how steroids should be avoided in most of the patients and how CT scans don't need to be done and how such polypharmacy does not need to be done. So that message should also go across.
2: Yeah, so I think these are very interesting observations. So I think what you were asking about the end of the pandemic, end of the pandemic comes when basically the virus loses its effectivity uh, as becoming a concerning uh, life-threatening entity and that's happening either by what was initially thought out optimistically as herd immunity and what is now done more systematically as vaccination. So I think between a combination of people who get infected which is happening left right and center in many parts of the world and the immunity conferred by that which is also questioned question right now and the vaccine which is coming encouragingly in some form or the other uh, to most countries we hope to get us by the first quarter uh, there will be at least a, what's called a leveling off or a comfort level where it will start stop being a day-to-day news and people can move on with lives. I think at this point, in addition to what my colleague said, the two most concerning thing is if we could identify who gets sick. In the mild people, who is going to get sicker and reach the hospital and have that life-threatening 1 to 1.5% mortality which is talked about. If that can be pinpointed over time, either by clinical characteristics or research or findings, then I think it would be much easier to convince people and find out what to do and where. Otherwise, the whole world is trying to go into a generalized precautionary measure for that particular element. So these are the areas which we are realizing. I think at the end of the nine months, two areas to work on is look at this part of it and secondly, where to put your resources. Ultimately, working behind. If we want to reduce mortality, where after all these lessons, whether it's drugs, practices, uh, testing, admission policies, in-hospital policies, medications, what do we do? Today, as we speak, the U.S. is getting overwhelmed. First time in our entire existence, we have seen a headline that U.S. hospitals are overwhelmed because they have 100,000 admissions. I think we also got over and we just don't talk about it in statistics and so on. We just manage our little areas and try to do our best in our own ecosystems. But it is extremely concerning to see that. So if we can look at all that, then the edge goes off, the fear goes off, more information is there for people to have reassurance. And then we can actually have targeted strategies rather than very global strategies which have had only, only so much success. So, yes, in in short, light is at the end of the tunnel is coming. The silver lining is evident between, uh, you know, infection, immunity and, and this upcoming vaccination. But a lot more work needs to be done to, to take the edge off and give people comfort in the shortest amount of time. It's very disturbing to hear things like 2022, 2024 and so on, which are going on. And we hope that in the near future that becomes less as the, the world moves on. Encouragingly, I was listening to something in the JAMA area last night, Uh, there was a vaccine specialist from America, who said that if you caught a thousand of these scientists from all over the world, and you asked them in January of 2020, that they will have the year end, they would say impossible, but that has happened. So if there is one arena where there is impossibility which is uh, can be doable, certainly I think the world as a whole can pick up uh, for the first time a unified without borders initiative to try and make a difference so as to have some normalcy in existence.
0: Yes, yes. I think that is very encouraging also like to see the entire community coming together and you know finding a solution to this uh, dreaded pandemic. Uh, another thing is that in just about two decades right we have had the SARS epidemic in 2002 and then we had the MERS epidemic in 2012 then we have now the uh, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, pandemic so d- this is sort of a recurrent uh, phenomenon that we are seeing that zoonotic diseases are coming to the forefront and becoming uh, pa- epidemics and becoming pandemics so in terms of a vaccine or in terms of any uh, solution, like a medical solution, is there one solution for all? Do you think that that will be a reality in the future?
3: So um, so basically, you know, uh, preparedness is the key. Uh, So, uh, you know, for example, the why have Southeast Asian countries like Taiwan, Thailand, uh, Korea, etc. done well with SARS-CoV-2? It is because after the SARS epidemic, they prepared themselves. So I think that is one important thing because everywhere the government should invest in public health system and other things so that, you know, because these epidemics will continue to come. It's how we deal with them that is important. So I think preparedness is the key and um, that they should. And I think something has to be done about these practices and these animal rearing practices and eating practices, some kind of legislations, et cetera, which can prevent uh, them. And the third important thing is that now that we have some vaccine platforms, which have been designed like the MRNA platform, you know, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine is on these platforms, and you are able to produce the vaccine within nine months probably an effective vaccine. The safety we do not know about. I think it will be a, you know, next time an epidemic comes, you know, the time lag between the onset of the epidemic and the production of vaccine will shorten further. So as Dr. Mehta was saying that, you know, intensive care has spruced up, public health is also spruced up. So all these things they have, we have to be in a constant state of preparedness, uh, you know, to handle these disasters. Anything from your end, Dr. Yatin Mehta, on
1: this? No, I think they have covered it. Basically, public awareness of public health. What I find also, public hygiene has improved in the last six months. You know, you find not people throwing things, people are not uh, urinating in the public and all that. That is, uh, I don't see it. I mean, so that is a good thing. Because that is why Southeast Asia, some of the countries are poorer than India, have lesser public health issues than we have. So public health becomes very important. I realize regarding even for multi-drug resistant organisms and things like that, is Thailand has curtailed so well. Thailand is not a very rich country. Uh, and still we are much poorer than that because public health awareness and the ministries working together is also important. Otherwise, the uh, horticulture ministry is not talking to the agriculture ministry, is not talking to the health ministry. So they it takes years and years to bring legislation, but that is now being implemented here. So, we are realizing now public health importance because prevention is the best thing. I mean, cure gets too expensive for a developing country like us with the limited resources. So, I think public health awareness, vaccination, hygiene, food, hygienic food, hygienic water, clear water, these are the things which we need to work on now in the next few years before the next pandemic
0: comes. Uh, Dr. Ravindra Mehta, my question is to you. The question is that, uh, uh, you know, you said about taking things further. So, do you plan to expand the study on Remdesivir? Well,
2: currently, no. I think we're focusing areas and focusing attention many other areas. See, Remdesivir now is, even if you try to get any new study, there is this heavy uh, shadow of solidarity uh, looming over every study you do now. I was going through the med archive space to see what is new in Remdesivir after we put our uh, study there. Hardly anything. One study of Remdesivir plus steroid from Johns Hopkins. Otherwise, most of them are reviews and analysis and, you know, expert perspectives. So I think uh, we probably won't work on this anymore. But other areas, as my colleagues were talking about, are very fascinating. For example, uh, what is the infection spectrums? Uh, what is this? We, in Yatin I will agree, we have observed this thing called barotrauma. The lungs of these patients get damaged much more than we ever saw. Why is there an accelerated mortality? And above all, I think uh, to answer your previous question, a lot of thought should be dec- done, uh, put into what could we do better again? For example, on a, on a national level, I'm just shifting gears over here, this lockdown is something unprecedented in the history of the country what was this lockdown do we have a literally an auditor general of a lockdown said how was this done what was the data which led to it what were the repercussions of this if we were to do it again how would we do it in such a country down the line you know just like we looked at demonetization with a fine tooth comb what did it finally get us into uh, and so on and so forth secondly resource allocation major issue as my colleague was trying to point out major issue as we talk of hospitals and countries, if the United States of America is talking of overwhelming coming in the Times of India or any other newspaper in our uh, in Bangalore, then it's a major issue, basically. The third is utilitarian medicine, as Dr. Tanu was trying to say. Where do we actually say that let's put down some standardized stuff? Fourthly, we should have had more research in the pandemic. I mean, we are a massive country and what did, what research could have been initiated from the beginning? We have some nice work with one trial in convalescent plasma. Beyond that, we don't have anything major to the best of my knowledge. A lot of these things should be looked at carefully when we looked at handling the next uh, issue. Uh, you know, Clearly, we did some good things. Remdesivir availability, amazing, I think, at least in the urban areas. Uh, you know, The government's participation, very uh, proactive compared to before. But so many other areas can be looked at so as to have the next pandemic further tackled. Uh, the last thing is obviously, will, will another pandemic come? Sure, it's going to come. Looking at the way the trail you're putting things forward, I think we it is going to come. We just hope that it will never be on the colossal nature as this one. So, many lessons learned. If we don't really analyze them, archive them, and put something for the future, I think it is time lost and an opportunity whiled away.
1: Uh, any
0: final message to our audience? Uh, I would just
2: say, like to say, uh, Dr.
1: Mehta, Ravinder Mehta, presented his data to us in the CME yesterday, and I was very impressed. And this was a retrospective single-center analysis, a proper scientific analysis of how much of real substance can come out of that, even retrospective data from a single hospital. So if you have a large uh, multi-center studies, India can produce a lot of science out of this. So this was a good learning for me. So, I must congratulate Dr. Ravida Mehta on this uh, study from this thing and I'm sure it will see, see the light of day in a good journal. I'm sure of that. So, I think India can also produce a lot of good quality work because critically we are doing excellent work. Uh, comparable to the western uh, good uh, centers. So, science is where we need to, I think, concentrate and work
2: together. Absolutely. And I think Dr. Yatin Mehta actually holds the hat of uh, one of the leading figures in the critical care field. Uh, not to mention extremely scientific mind, and Dr. Tanu Singhal is one of the premier infectious disease experts. So, I think if we all get together and put our hatch together, there's no doubt that uh, a New England Journal of Medicine or a JAMA will have to look at us more respectively as we do things in the, in, the, in the fashion mentioned. I would also like to add that about his point on hard work, we really work hard. If you look at the time in the pandemic, three weeks ago, New York was taking $330 and three days to get an RT PCR report. The UK will not give you remdesivir in a hospital compared to that India, I think, has ramped up its testing so remarkably home testing. So many things were going on, the availability of the drug, the way the providers have picked up. So I think a lot has to be said about the, uh, the amazing effort, the colossal commitment and the unique way the country has responded. But as my colleague said, we could always you know, go notches higher.
3: Yes. So, I would also say that this has been a different experience. The way the government and the public sector has responded, this time is phenomenal. The police, you know, the sanitation workers, the healthcare workers from the public sector, the labs, clinicians, everybody has come together. So, you know, I mean, you feel proud. And, you know, uh, the other thing is, when I look at the journal articles also, uh, which are published on PubMed, you see, even if there is a journal, uh, there's an article from a foreign country or a different country, there is an Indian who's at the lead. So that is very good because most of the articles, there is an Indian who's either the lead author or uh, figuring prominently in the authorship. And there are some good, good articles, review articles which have come out from our country also. So that tells us that, you know, we have evolved as a country and if we iron out the other things, then, you know, um, you know, we'll be at the top. Uh, So I have that pride, you know,
0: I have. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining with Deccan Herald, uh, all the doctors. It's great pleasure to have you on our show.
2: Thank you. Bye.
3: Thank you. you.
0: Thanks. That's all in today's episode. Tune in this evening on a news update podcast from the newsroom to catch all the exciting developments of the day and to get the news while it's still budding. For latest news and updates, log on to www.deckinherald.com. Check out our e-paper at www.deckinheraldepaper.com. To read news on the go, sign up to our Telegram channel, t.me slash Keep up with the news from your interested sphere by downloading the all new Herald app, in which you can personalize, have a quick glance at news shots, check highlights, and even listen to. You can get it from Google Play Store and Apple App Store, and you can find the links to
3: the same in the description.